Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this episode is one of a number of special programs that we're publishing this year to mark 100 years of women gaining the right to vote in the USA. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified in August of 1920. Today, my guest is the award-winning author and historian Kimberly Hamlin, who's a professor specializing in the history of women, gender, and sex at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Her most recent book is titled Free Thinker, Sex, Suffrage, and the Extraordinary Life of Helen Hamilton Gardner. Now, as I speak, it's the 29th of April of 2020, and we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, so we're recording this interview remotely. I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and Kimberly is joining me from her home in Cincinnati, Ohio. Kimberly Hamlin, welcome to the podcast. Rachel, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. So in my preparation for this interview, I was looking over the timeline of the women's suffrage movement in the United States, and there are many organizations which formed as part of this general movement. But you focused on one in particular, I believe, which is called the National American Woman Suffrage Association. Is that right? That's correct. And they generally went by the mouthful NASA. So can you tell me a little bit about what led up to the creation of this organization? Sure. So the suffrage movement is a direct descendant of the abolition movement of the 1830s, 1840s. So in the 1830s and 1840s, many women and some men within the abolition movement began to think about what they termed universal suffrage, meaning that they saw the errors of the Constitution in both endorsing slavery and limiting citizenship rights to white men. So some people within the abolition movement began to think what they should really be advocating for, in addition to the end of slavery and the emancipation of African-Americans was universal suffrage, the right of all citizens to vote. So many abolitionists and women's rights activists in this 1830s, 1840s, 1850s time period were one and the same. One for all, all for one, we should work for universal suffrage. Now, some people maybe would have prioritized women's rights, you know, in their like daily to-do list over abolition, and some abolitionists would have prioritized abolition over women's rights. But in terms of their general commitment, they were aligned. And this coalition breaks down in the 1860s as the Civil War is ending and the United States is trying to figure out what to do with the emancipated citizens from the South and whether or not women should be afforded citizenship rights along with Black men. So then this universal suffrage coalition breaks down in the 1860s specifically over whether or not to support the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment is one of the Reconstruction Amendments and it extends citizenship and voting rights to African-American men. A lot of the leaders of this movement, especially Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, wanted women to be included. Many of their colleagues said, no, no, that will be way too radical. We Instead, we need to have one reform per generation. It will be too much if we included women. And by that, they meant Black women and white women. It will be too much to include women in the 15th Amendment. We need to just focus on extending rights to Black men. So at this point, Stanton and Anthony and other of their allies form the National Woman Suffrage Association, and they say, we will work no more with men. We will work solely for the rights of women, including but not limited to the vote. 
the people on the other side of the fence, those that did support the 15th Amendment without women included in it, formed a group called the American Woman Suffrage Association. So then for the 1870s and 1880s, there's two rival suffrage groups. The national group led by Stanton and Anthony always focused on getting a federal amendment. They thought basically that what women needed was a 15th Amendment of their own. The other group, the American Woman Suffrage Association, led by Lucy Stone and her husband, Henry Blackwell, focused on suffrage for women on a state-by-state basis. And these two groups worked for different purposes through different ends and generally didn't like each other very much until 1890, when they came together to form the mouthful that is NASA, the National American Woman Suffrage Association. The merger of this group represents the triumph of a more mainstream, more palatable version of women's rights that focused on, you know, emphasizing Christian values and lost some of the radicalism that Stanton, for example, had advocated. So Stanton is sort of eased out of the movement after this 1890 merger because Stanton wanted to do things like publish her book, The Woman's Bible, in which she argued that the Bible was the root cause of women's oppression. Stanton wanted to talk about things like marriage, which she argued was essentially legalized prostitution because women could not really, for the most part, support themselves. So in the absence of having their own money, they were forced to sell themselves to a husband, which she said was not that much different than selling yourself to a series of men as prostitutes do. So this newly reunified NASA joined forces with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which added hundreds of thousands of new members to the suffrage group because there were many, many more temperance advocates than there were suffragists at this point, and really kind of marked the the more mainstream tendencies of the movement. So who was in control of NASA during its early years? Well, that's a great question. Technically, when NASA formed, many of the group's members pressed Susan B. Anthony to be the group's president. And she basically said, I couldn't possibly, it should be my very best friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. We wouldn't be here without her. So Anthony essentially pressed for Stanton to be made the first president of this new group, NASA. And Stanton reluctantly accepted, but it was basically in title only. It was kind of honorific. Stanton considered herself what she called a freelance with regard to women's rights organizations in the 1890s. She didn't want to be censored. She didn't want to have to moderate what she said. So even though she was the titular president, she was not really the on the ground president. And that was largely Susan B. Anthony and her group of women that she called her nieces, like Carrie Chapman Catt, Anna Howard Shaw, for example. Those were the, the main leaders. Can you tell us a little bit more about Susan Anthony? What was her background and what kind of a figure was she? She was really the guiding light of the movement. She was from Rochester, from an abolitionist family, and she gained so many followers in part because she was so brave and traveling around the country tirelessly. So Stanton, for much of the 19th century, was more home-based because she had so many children. So she worked out a system whereby Susan B. Anthony would come and stay with Stanton you know, for weeks at a time to help with Stanton's domestic and child caring tasks so that Stanton could focus on writing. And then Susan B. Anthony bravely, boldly, you know, traveled the country reading and thinking about and spreading the messages that she and Stanton had written together. Right. And you just described how this group Norsa came about after two factions had been created following the passing of the 15th Amendment, which enfranchised African-American men. 
Once this new group formed, what was the position regarding women of color and people of color more generally? So Nassau's official policy on membership was that each individual chapter, so Nassau was like a federated group where you would have local chapters that would report to the state chapters that would report to the national chapter. So their official policy was that each individual chapter could make their own membership policies. And this maybe sounds fine, like as we just say it out loud, but basically why they did that was so that individual chapters could discriminate against African-American women and decide whether or not they wanted to have any African-American women members. So in practice, Nassau was essentially segregated. Some of their northern chapters may have had a few African-American women members, but for the most part, the group was dominated by white women. There weren't any African-American women leaders of the association, for example, and it was more or less segregated. African-American women leaders and also Frederick Douglass, for example, male leaders did occasionally speak at the group's meetings and especially at their annual conventions. But by and large, it was a group led by and for white women. What was happening to women more generally in the North American culture at this time? A lot of things changed for women in the aftermath of the Civil War. So in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, you see a growing number, still a teeny tiny number, but nevertheless a growing number of women attending college and even graduate school. Many of these women end up marrying and becoming homemakers, just like their previous generations of women, but a significant number of them do begin to pursue careers and make contributions to various professions, including medicine, the law, and especially reform. So the other big movement that happens in the aftermath of the Civil War is the women's club movement. Even for women who didn't go to college or didn't pursue careers or in no way would have considered themselves women's rights women, they still would join women's clubs. Women's clubs spanned the gauntlet from like reading clubs to garden clubs to reform clubs. Through their involvement in these women's organizations, Again, some of which were politically minded, some weren't. Women, nevertheless, gained leadership skills, learned how to run meetings, learned how to speak in public, learned how to make agendas. And eventually, the growth of these women's clubs brought more and more women into the public sphere to advocate for changes in their towns, in their states, in their communities. And by far, the most prominent, the most populous was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, led by Frances Willard. And initially, the temperance ladies were not really aligned with the suffragists. But after the 1890 merger of Nassau, that in part was motivated by a desire to work more closely with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So after this 1890 merger, Nassau and the WCTU are more aligned and the WCTU endorses and works for the vote. And how were suffragists being viewed over this period? Did it start out that they were kind of seen as a sort of lunatic fringe and then gradually they became more and more acceptable and it became more and more common for women to embrace the cause? Yes, exactly. So in 1848, for example, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott organized the Women's Rights Convention at Seneca Falls, the press coverage of the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention really shows how suffragists were viewed. And that is very much lunatic fringe. Like these women were considered beyond the pale. You know, what could they possibly be thinking about? Who were these women? What would society be like if women like this, you know, became the majority? So That was very much an example of how women's rights advocates were considered lunatic fringe. And even within kind of this reformist group that gathered at the Seneca Falls Convention, the most controversial 
resolution that they adopted at Seneca Falls was women's right to vote. So even among the, you know, radical reformers gathered there, even they thought that asking for the vote was a little too much, a step too far. So throughout the 19th century, women's rights advocates and women's suffragists are a teeny, teeny minority of the population, a teeny minority of even reformers. A lot of the spoofs about them would say things like they were short-haired women and long-haired men calling their gender into question, calling their sexuality into question, or they were portrayed as spinsters, man haters, women who couldn't, you know, get a husband and so became really embittered. Of course, which is not true. Many of the leading suffragists had, you know, very happy and supportive marriages. Many had many children and were wonderful mothers, but that's how they were portrayed in the press. And they were portrayed that way in part because anti-suffragists really tried to advance the claim that women voting was not only unnatural, but would also lead to the demise of the family. Anti-suffragists argued that women already had the vote, that the vote was not an individual right, but a family right, that women were enfranchised first by their fathers who spoke on behalf of the family and later by their husbands who represented their views. So that was a shift that had to take place in order for women to get the vote as people had to embrace the idea that the unit of the state was the individual and not the family. So after NASA formed in 1890, what was the group's primary means of going about gaining support for their cause? In the 1890s, NASA's main strategy was um, they adopted kind of a blended model where they would work simultaneously for state referendum to enfranchise women and at the same time for a federal amendment to enfranchise women. So they had some success in the Western states in the 1890s. Colorado, for example, granted women the vote in 1894. So they would work, you know, kind of state by state, which the vast, vast majority of those state by state efforts failed. And you can imagine like the huge amount of labor that went into these state referendums. So imagine like you don't have the vote and you're trying to get the vote by persuading people who can vote to listen to you. So it's a door-to-door canvases, it's petitions, it's going to see the state legislature when they really don't want to see you or have anything to do with you over and over and over again. And many of the individual states that did have referendum on women's suffrage ultimately rescinded them or passed separate laws saying, oh, just because you got your issue on the ballot once, you have to now get it again twice, you know, to really count. So there were so many obstacles to the state-by-state method. But in the 1890s and even into the early 1900s, that was one key method. The second was working in Congress, trying to advocate for a federal amendment. That strategy was, I would say, kind of backburnered by NASA in the 1890s and early 1910s, really until the ascendancy of Carrie Chapman Catt, who became president of NASA in 1915. NASA said they were advocating for the federal amendment, but this basically amounted to a once a year testimony before the House Rules Committee or the House Judiciary Committee and before the Senate Committee on Women's Suffrage. So once a year, they would kind of come to D.C., give heartfelt, meaningful speeches about why women should vote. Members of Congress would say, oh, yeah, that's so cute that you think that or, you know, you're insane. Then that would never happen. And then they would go away and nothing really happened. Were there regions of the country that were particularly challenging in terms of persuading states to give women the right to vote? And if so, where and why? The states that most strenuously and stridently objected to women voting were the states in the South. And this is kind of twofold. 
on the one hand, the South had, in some ways, people might continue to argue, still has an idea of women on a pedestal that was not quite the same as the ideas about women held in Northern, Midwestern, and Western states. So in part, it was the Southern ideal of masculinity, of patriarchy, of the man is in charge that kind of led to a more challenging rhetorical environment for suffragists. But I would say the even bigger obstacle to women voting in the South was Southern fears of extending the vote to Black women. By the time the 19th Amendment comes before Congress to be voted on in the 19th, the real objection that members of Congress, really from all regions and from both parties, have is extending the vote to Black women in the South. And they also have this other fear that if the 19th Amendment becomes law, it will force Southern states to also uphold the 15th Amendment in franchising Black men. And while that had technically you know, been an amendment since 1870 when it was ratified, the 15th Amendment had never been enforced since the Compromise of 1877. So Black men in the South had been disfranchised through various voter repression moves in the South, like literacy tests, poll taxes, and outright violence, intimidation, and even lynching. And the federal government had done nothing to uphold the rights of Black citizens in the South. So congressmen feared that the 19th Amendment would somehow compel the enforcement of the 15th as well. I was struck when I was reading one of the articles you published on this subject where you're talking about Senator Williams in Mississippi. And he is saying that if he were in any other state, he would vote for women's suffrage, but not in Mississippi. Black women, he charged, cannot be controlled as the men can be. And they would almost all, without exception, go to the polls, while a great many white women would not. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So that was one of the most shocking things I found in my research. John Sharp Williams was, as you mentioned, a senator from Mississippi, and the suffragists referred to him as the most erudite man in the Senate. He loved to read. He loved history. He also wrote himself, and he was good friends with the woman whose biography I just wrote, Helen Hamilton Gardner. So Helen Hamilton Gardner had known him through her husband, who was a Civil War hero. And they shared a love of history and of reading and writing. And so they would trade books back and forth and they celebrated birthdays together. And HHG, as I call her, was also good friends with John Sharp Williams' wife and daughter. So the week after the House first passed the 19th Amendment in January of 1919, suffragists turned their attention to lobbying the Senate. They knew they were several votes shy in the Senate and they knew they needed some Southern support to get the two-thirds majority they needed to pass. So they began thinking, like, of these Southern opponents, who could we turn? And at first they thought, well, maybe we could turn John Sharp Williams because he's the smartest and he's the most well-read and he's not like a virulent, you know, racist like some of his colleagues. So Helen Hamilton Gardner writes to him and she says, you know, hey, John Sharp Williams, it was so great celebrating my birthday together last year. Please tell your wife I said hi, you know, reminding him of their ties and their friendship. And then she said, did you analyze the vote on suffrage in the House? And did you see that only a few states, only six, in fact, were 100% against the vote in Mississippi was one of them? And she says, John Sharp Williams, I want you to redeem that state. You know as well as I do that the 19th Amendment is coming and you might as well be on the right side of history, she says. Please redeem your state and extend the suffrage you know, to me and to your wife and your daughters. And John Sharp Williams writes her back the very next day and he says, Helen Hamilton Gardner, you know, you're my dear friend. 
And if anything could make me change my mind, it would be your letter. And then he says, but I will never vote for the federal amendment. And like you said, he said, if I lived in any white state, I would, but I will never vote to enfranchise the black women of Mississippi for two reasons. One, they will go to the polls while many white women will not. And he said, they cannot be controlled like the black men. And then he expands on that and he says, you know, Helen Hamilton Gardner, if you don't know this, I will tell you confidentially that the real reason black men in Mississippi don't vote, it's not because Mississippi leaders have disfranchised them with poll taxes, literacy tests, and various other shenanigans. It's because they know that if they do go, some of them will get hurt. So here he is like outrightly saying straight up in Mississippi, we deter black men from voting through violence and intimidation. And he says, because of, you know, chivalry, that would never work on women, that even if some white men in Mississippi did beat up black women to stop them from voting, that would look so bad that the whole moral sense of the world, he says, will be against the Mississippi white man. And his sentiments, while kind of shocking in 2020, were very widely held. So the other Senate example that I talk a lot about in my book is William Bora, the Lion of Idaho. And he was a Republican from Idaho, which is a state where women had voted since, I think, 1890. And so the suffragists considered him an ally, and they were totally flummoxed and surprised and shocked and disappointed when William Bora refused to support the federal amendment because they thought for sure he would. But he said, oh, no, no, ladies, I only support suffrage on a state by state measure because I could never vote to enfranchise the black women of the South. Right. That is really shocking. And there's also this whole issue of states' rights that comes up as well, isn't there? I would say that that is the same issue. So anti-suffragists call it states' rights, but really what they're saying is states' rights to discriminate against voters. So I would say it's one and the same. Okay, okay. So I want to hear more about Helen Hamilton Gardner a little bit later on, but first I'm kind of interested in what happens in the early part of the 20th century with Norsa, because in around 1910, there's another split when Alice Paul comes back from the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about her and what happened? Alice Paul is a young, brilliant Vassar graduate who travels to London and spends time in England with the more militant British suffragists led by the Pankhursts. She returns to the United States and thinks it's time to really mix up the suffrage movement in America. She says, basically, we're done with sending petitions. We're done with writing letters. We need to take our movement to the streets. We need to start protesting and really raise the profile of this movement and get our right to vote. So she first goes to the NASA annual meeting in 1912. And she says, you know, I've just come from England where there's much more activity and public protests, and I would like to do something like that in the U.S. In particular, I would like to organize a big parade, she calls it a march or a procession, a big march procession, to coincide with the first inauguration of Woodrow Wilson that will be held in March 1913. And now the NASA leaders are kind of in a bind. They recognize that Alice Paul is young and she's brilliant and she brings a lot of vibrancy, but they're also already kind of sensing that she's not going to just do what she's told. <laughs> she might not just follow the Nassau party line. So they kind of reluctantly say, okay, Alice Paul, go ahead and take over our congressional committee, which is more or less dormant, except for the one time a year where they organize the testimonies before Congress. Go ahead and take that over plan your parade, but you need to raise all your own money and, you know, generally abide by our bylaws. And so she says, yeah, yeah, fine, sure. 
And within days, she's reaching out to women in D.C., including Helen Hamilton Gardner. She's reaching out to leaders in Washington, and she's getting this parade planned. And what she ends up doing is organizing and executing the largest women's rights march that had happened in the U.S. until 2017. So thousands of women come to Washington. They march up Pennsylvania Avenue from the Capitol to the White House. And it's a, a beautiful and moving testimony to the variety of women that want the vote, to women's historical contributions, not just to America, but to the world. She has international leaders come as well, and she pays a lot of attention to the pageantry. It's beautiful. There's bands, there's costumes, there's tableau, which are like plays at the end. So it's a really moving testament. And for the first time, the national media gives positive press coverage to the suffrage movement. That all sounds really positive. So why was there an issue between Alice Paul and the leaders of NORSA? Well, so Alice Paul, you know, she didn't just want to organize one parade. She really envisioned kind of a a redirection of the U.S. suffrage movement. She wanted to do things like focus on protesting the party in power, which in the teens was the Democrats. In the 1912 election, Woodrow Wilson, who was a Democrat, became president, and both houses of Congress became majority Democratic in the 1912 election. So Alice Paul says, you know, I want to protest all Democrats in order to show that women can set the agenda. NASA, on the other hand, was strictly nonpartisan, and they recognized that many of their best allies were Democrats. Many of the Western congressmen, for example, who supported suffrage were Democrats. So they said, we can't understand at all why you would blanket protest Democrats and work to defeat Democrats when many of them are our best friends in Congress. But to Alice Paul, it showed women's ability to set the agenda. So she wanted to protest all Democrats, and she adopted these more militant protest strategies in general. So for the first year after the parade, Alice Paul tried to stay on the Nassau Congressional Committee and run her own group called the Congressional Union. So Alice Paul wanted to fully redirect all suffrage resources to passing the federal amendment. Nassau, as you may remember, is still kind of doing state-by-state amendments and the federal amendment at the same time. Alice Paul says, no, no, we need to focus all of our efforts in D.C. for the federal amendment. So Nassau kind of agrees with that, but they disagree with her protest tactics and her partisan tactics. So in the lead up, for example, to the 1914 annual Nassau convention, and this is when Alice Paul is still on team Nassau, her right-hand woman, Doris Stevens, gets in trouble with the police for chalking the sidewalks with pro-suffrage messages. Anna Howard Shaw, who at the time was president of NASA, calls her in and says, Doris Stevens, oh my God, can you just keep it together for the convention and like try not to get arrested for chalking the sidewalks with your suffrage messages? Like we're just trying to, you know, make friends in DC, present ourselves as women that members of Congress can work with. And so After the convention, they basically realize within a couple of weeks that it's impossible for these two groups to work together because Alice Paul's Congressional Union, which ends up becoming the National Women's Party, does not want to be beholden to NASA, does not want to follow the NASA rules about protesting and about nonpartisanship. So the two groups eventually split by the spring of 1914 and then become enemies for the rest of the suffrage fight from 1914 through ratification and beyond. With your perspective as a historian, do you have an an opinion as to which of these two groups was more successful in getting the amendment passed? 
You know, that is a really tricky question to answer. And what I honestly feel is that it's both. So in my research and in my book that I just wrote, Free Thinker, I focus more on the Nassau side of the story because Helen Hamilton Gardner, who I write about, was a Nassau leader. And just to give one example of why I think you need both, Alice Paul pretty quickly begins, um, she doesn't yet protest at the White House, but she begins as early as 1914, 1915, heckling was the word they used, heckling the president. So following President Wilson around, interrupting his speeches. So President Wilson begins to realize that he has to pay attention to suffrage because these suffragists keep following him around. And that's what Helen Hamilton Gardner uses as her in to the White House. So Helen Hamilton Gardner becomes the Nassau liaison to the White House, but she does it. Her very first letter is to President Wilson's chief of staff, Joseph Tumalti. And she says, you know, I know this Alice Paul woman is following you around, heckling you. And I just want you to know that not all suffragists are like her. And in fact, we totally oppose Alice Paul and we want nothing to do with her. So now Wilson and his staff know they have to pay attention to suffrage and they really don't want to meet with Alice Paul, even though Alice Paul is the one who has made it an issue. So they'll meet with these more polite, more measured suffragists represented by Gardner. So now if there hadn't been Alice Paul heckling the president, probably no one would have ever answered Helen Hamilton Gardner's letter. Do you see what I mean? So I think that you really needed both. I do see what you mean. That's fascinating. So tell us more about Helen Hamilton Gardner, because her approach seems to be very much an exemplification of the approach of Norsa. Yes. So Helen Hamilton Gardner actually came to suffrage activity late in life. Um, She led a fascinating life as a feminist reformer from the 1880s through the the early 1900s. And she was not aligned with the suffragists. She was good friends with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And like Stanton, she was a free thinker, a sex reformer who wrote bold novels decrying the sexual double standard and who worked to raise the age of sexual consent for girls, which in 1890 was 12 or younger in 38 states. But A little bit later in life, Gardner ends up marrying this Civil War hero, Selden Allen Day, and they move to Washington, D.C., and they buy a house in 1910 right next door to the Speaker of the House, Champ Clark of Missouri. So now that Gardner's, you know, a little bit older, a little bit more settled down, she begins to become more involved with the suffragists. By 1912, the suffragists call her their most efficient volunteer in Washington. And she's so efficient because She lives next door to the Speaker of the House, and through her husband, she has a ton of congressional and high-power friends in D.C., and she's very polite, and she's very charming, and everyone likes to be around her, and that's kind of her signature way to get suffrage on the table is to charm people. So she'll be friends, she'll make you muffins, and then she'll say, oh, hey, Champ Clark my next door neighbor, the Speaker of the House, how's our amendment going in the committee? Do you think you have the votes to get us through? So she works through charm, but also she's super smart and very strategic. NASA eventually refers to her as their diplomatic corps because she's so tuned into Congress and they rely on her to back channel all their messages and to negotiate congressional passage of the amendment. And she's their lead liaison at the White House. And so by 1917, 1918, Gardner is a welcome daily presence at the Wilson White House. She's there every day. She's calling on the phone. They're telegraphing back and forth. And she's good friends, not only with Wilson and his wife, but with his top staff. She later bragged that she asked President Wilson for 22 favors, and he granted her 21. What was the one he didn't grant? She 
asked him to appoint Carrie Chapman Catt, who was then the president of NASA, to the international body that was negotiating the end of World War I. Carrie Chapman Catt, in addition to being an international suffrage leader, was an international leader in the peace movement. So Gardner said, you know what, President Wilson, we have sacrificed so much for this war and we need to be part of the peace agreement as well. And the best woman to do that and to speak for us would be Carrie Chapman Catt. And Wilson said, as much as I would personally like to appoint Carrie Chapman Catt to the Peace Commission, there's no way the other world leaders would deal with a woman and I couldn't possibly do that. Okay. What role did the war actually play in helping this amendment go through? Well, that's a great question. Suffragists in both NASA and the NWP, which was Alice Paul's group, the National Women's Party, drew on the war rhetorically to make their arguments, but they did so in different ways. So NASA, for example, went all in on supporting the war through volunteer efforts, through setting up hospitals in France that were staffed by all women doctors and nurses. They were appointed to various like war commissions through Wilson. And so they basically attempted to show women's patriotism and the fact that women were deserving of the vote through their war efforts. The NWP, on the other hand, used the war to point out the hypocrisy of Wilson's position. So they basically you know, painted signs and began protesting at the White House saying, how can you say this is a war to extend democracy when you deny democracy at home to half the population? So strategically and rhetorically, both sides really played up the war. And eventually, President Wilson demanded that Congress pass the 19th Amendment as a war measure. He adopted this NASA argument that women had proven their worthiness, that they had proven that they deserved the vote and that they were, you know, invaluable citizens and that they should be rewarded with the vote. Now, in my book, Free Thinker, I studied a lot of the congressional correspondence and exactly how the 19th Amendment got through Congress and who voted which way. So if you look, you will see that Wilson's war measure argument really did not change any votes. <laughs> so was it the most effective strategy? I don't know. It certainly was one that the press picked up on. It certainly made headlines. It may have done a lot to convince you know, mainstream Americans that women deserve the vote. But in terms of shifting votes in Congress, no. Obviously, in their campaign, the suffragists needed the press to be on their side. Can you tell me a little bit about the relationship between suffragists and the media? Yes. So for much of the 19th century, the media reported, you know, mockingly and uh, disparagingly against suffragists and women's rights activists. This begins to change in the 1900s and especially with the 1913 suffrage parade in DC. That was the first time when papers across the country reported positively on the suffrage movement. And they also included lots of pictures and many of the headlines remarked on the beauty of the suffragists. And you know, many of them were young and the suffragists, for example, were clever in their use of publicity. And they used the beautiful Inez Mulholland, who was a lawyer, but was known as the most beautiful suffragist. So they put her on all their press releases and they put her at the front of the 1913 parade and the press picks right up on it. And so they begin positively shaping the media. And again, this was something that Helen Hamilton Gardner, who had been a longtime writer and editor and member of groups like the New York Women's Press Club. She had many friends in the press. She would send out press releases, call editors, call writers every day and kind of pitch them stories and turn press coverage their way. So in the 19-teens, press coverage shifts somewhat to be much more favorable towards suffrage and to remark upon kind of the looks of the suffragists, which I'm not saying is a good thing, but it did enhance the coverage that they got. 
Then this shifts again when Alice Paul and the Silent Sentinels begin daily protests at the White House in 1917. And this receives mixed coverage in the press. And the women of Nassau, who opposed the picketing, were greatly dismayed by the press coverage that the pickets and the Silent Sentinels received because they were trying to back-channel negotiations in Congress to get a House Committee on Women's Suffrage set up. And every time they thought that they had the votes, another member of Congress would say, you know what, I'm not going to vote for this committee, while suffragists are picketing the White House in a time of war. So Nassau took to the press to try to plead their case. Helen Hamilton Gardner went to the White House press corps and said, hey guys, because they were nearly all guys, when you write about Alice Paul and these silent sentinels at the White House, can you please not use the word suffrage or suffragist in your stories? Because we don't want Nassau, which has the word suffrage in the title, to be affiliated with these women of the National Women's Party. And by and large, the press shifted their use of language in covering the silent sentinels. Now, this brought a tremendous amount of grief and frustration to the NWP, as you can imagine, which had worked so well and so skillfully to get themselves in the papers and to be front page news every day. But the women of Nassau did not want in any way, shape or form to be affiliated with the protesters of the NWP. And to most Americans and to most men in Congress, They just couldn't be bothered to differentiate between these various factions of suffragists. To them, all uppity women were basically one and the same. And that was a big goal of the Nassau press operation was to be able to instruct the press, instruct members of Congress and the American populace that there were different factions of suffragists. Another element of this was that Helen Hamilton Gardner prevailed upon Carrie Chapman Catt, the Nassau president after 1915, that she should open a big suffrage headquarters in Washington. So Carrie Chapman Cat agreed, and they opened this beautiful, beautiful suffrage headquarters. They called it Suffrage House in a mansion located at 1626 Rhode Island Avenue. And they had it fully staffed, opened all the time. They had many events there. And part of Gardner's pitch that they should open this office was that they could work better with the press. Because as Gardner told Cat. All the newspapers in the country send their, quote, picked men to Washington. Their best reporters go to D.C. And when they look for suffrage news, all they find is Alice Paul because, you know, she's here all the time. So we need our own D.C. press office. And that's in part what they did with Suffrage House was to improve their relations with the press. Nassau also opened their own publishing house in 1917 after they got a huge bequest from Mrs. Frank Leslie, who went by Frank Leslie. She was a multimillionaire publisher. When she died, she left all her money to Nassau. So Carrie Chapman Cat used that to start a suffrage publishing company and massively enhanced their press operations. So not only did they begin to work more skillfully with the mostly male press corps, but they also began putting out their own press and generating their own publications. And how are those publications distributed? Through mail and through on the streets and at meetings. And does Suffrage House still exist? No, it's funny you ask. Last year I was in DC and I thought, I'm just, I want to go look at 1626 Rhode Island and it is not there. It's a parking lot. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> I know. But there's many beautiful pictures of it, one of one or two of which is in my new book, Free Thinker, but it looks really beautiful. So obviously the various strategies were successful in the end and the amendment was passed. Enough states approved it, even some in the South. But coming back to this 
issue of race, I was struck by a comment that you made in one of the articles that you wrote that part of the reason why some of the southern states did vote for the amendment wasn't because they thought it was going to enfranchise black women, but because they knew that it wouldn't. And so they felt safe in doing so. And one of the reviews of your book, it talks about how in writing about Helen Hamilton Gardner, her life sheds new light on why it was not until the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that the 19th Amendment became a reality for all women. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So that really is the key takeaway. And so I just want to say it again. The 19th Amendment didn't pass Congress because anyone thought it would enfranchise Black women in the South. It passed in the Congress because everyone knew it would not. And what I mean by that is that the suffrage leaders eventually or essentially capitulated and said to congressional opponents, we don't care about the 15th Amendment. We don't care if you enfranchise black women in southern states. You just you know, keep disfranchising them through poll taxes, intimidation, literacy tests, just like you do black men, just as long as you pass the 19th Amendment. So they basically said to this congressional fear that the 19th Amendment would compel the enforcement of the 15th, that no, they did not in any way mean for that to happen, nor would they raise that issue. You can also see this after the 19th Amendment was ratified when Black women leaders like Mary Church Terrell approached Alice Paul, approached Carrie Chapman Catt in Maudwood Park and said, gosh, you know, it's so great that we got the 19th Amendment ratified, but you know, Black women in the South still can't vote. Could we now work together to get the 15th Amendment enforced so that Black women in the South could vote along with the rest of us? And Maudwood Park, Carrie Chapman Catt and Alice Paul you know, basically ignored Mary Church Terrell and other women who came to them with that request. And I think that also really shows that that was not, you know, a priority that enfranchising black women in the South was not a priority for the white suffrage leaders. Right. So when we are commemorating 100 years of women's suffrage, we have to be kind of very careful about how we think about that, because in reality, it hasn't been 100 years since women have gained the right to vote. Exactly. So my hope for the suffrage centennial is that it will really shine a light on voting rights more broadly, that it'll remind us that the 19th Amendment did not, in fact, enfranchise all women, that many women of color were not enfranchised by it, um, and that African-American women in particular were not you know, in practice enfranchised until the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which was many key provisions of which were dismantled by the 2013 Shelby v. Holder decision. So I really hope that the suffrage centennial in 2020 really gets us talking about universal suffrage, about how we can expand voting rights and voting access uh, to all citizens. So I hope that it instigates much broader, larger conversations about voting rights. In terms of how the suffrage movement is remembered now, do you have any thoughts about the primary narrative that one tends to hear? Yes, I have many thoughts um, on the collective historical memory of suffrage, which to date has been really limited. When I give talks about suffrage, I usually begin and say, like, what names, what dates, what places, what events do people know about? And really, generally, most people know nothing. If, If anything, they can name maybe Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But our knowledge of women's rights history and women's contributions to history more broadly is so limited. And I think that that has major ramifications for how we think about women's role in politics today. 
this is also something that the suffragists themselves really believed. So in many ways, the suffragists were the first historians of women. They created their own history. They wrote their own history. They created many of the archives documenting women's contributions to American life. And they also used historical examples time and time again to make their claim that women had always been contributing to American life, even if we you know, seemed intent on forgetting about it. So these links between history and politics are really at the fore of women's claims to citizenship. And I think that's very true today. I think that the the more women's names that we know, the more we understand the huge contributions women have made to American life, the more likely we would be to elect women today. Is there anything that you would like to see done in order to promote more women in office today? Well, in terms of history, I really think that we need to upend and revise our shared narratives. Even today in 2020, while there have been some improvements in history textbooks and state standards, American history is still by and large the story of the achievements of old white guys. And you can see that reflected in who runs our country, who runs most major corporations. And I think there's a direct correlation. So in 2017, the National Women's History Museum conducted a huge survey of history textbooks in the U.S. And they found really that women are still allotted sidebar status and that our overall historical narratives have not really changed. So I would like to see changes in history textbooks and state standards and also in commemorative history, in the holidays we celebrate and the monuments that we see in the ways that our streets and our buildings are named. A piece I really love about this is Rebecca Solnit's City of Women essay, in which she also commissioned a cartographer to rename the New York City subway map, to rename each stop for a woman who was affiliated with that neighborhood. And just to see like how amazing it would be if we walked around in our daily life and saw things named for women and what a difference that would make in terms of how we understand ourselves and what we think is possible. We've taken up an awful lot of your time, so I'm going to bring this interview to a close in a moment. But I have one last question, which is related to the subject you've just been talking about. Do you see any links between the suffrage movement and the Me Too movement? Yes. One of the huge takeaways from my research on Helen Hamilton Gardner was that the suffrage movement was always concerned about bodily autonomy and reproductive autonomy. You can see this in women's demands for the right to say no in marriage, which was called voluntary motherhood, and in many examples of coded language that the suffragists use to argue for the vote. They very much thought that getting the vote would symbolically and hopefully in reality give them rights over their own bodies. They weren't obviously talking so much about birth control, but they were talking about the right to not be raped, the right to say no to their husband, and the right to have a say in the number of children that they have. There's many examples of this. Even in 1916, the first time that President Wilson addressed the Nassau Convention, the woman who spoke before him and gave her own keynote was Catherine Bement Davis. And she worked in New York City in the corrections department, and she talked about prostitution and sex. So they are very much interested in the sexual double standard and bodily autonomy all along. You can also see these links in the age of consent campaigns from the 1880s and 1890s. The age of consent campaigns were mostly led by the temperance women, not so much the suffragists. 
but through my research, I came to believe that what turned the temperance advocates into suffragists in the 1890s was the frustration they experienced in trying to increase the age of sexual consent for girls. So they would go year after year after year, state after state after state, and try to lobby for the age of sexual consent to be raised from 10 or 12 to 16 or 18. And they would repeatedly have the drawers slammed in their face and be told, no, they couldn't possibly do this. And so for the temperance women, this was a real takeaway message of why women needed the vote. If they couldn't even get something so common sense and so flagrantly wrong as, you know, raising the age of sexual consent for girls to be older than 10, it really showed them how much they needed the vote. Well, that is certainly food for thought. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kimberly Hamlin. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. Again, Dr. Hamlin is an award-winning historian and author, and she's also a professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. You can find out more about her work at the link given in the notes which accompany this podcast. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this is Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities, which is the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. The programme is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Thanks also to SokolovskyMusic.com. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.